call it Carnival or Mardi Gras. The days leading up to Fat Tuesday have been turning the social order upside down for a long time. The low can rise to become the high. The powerless can criticize the powerful. And everybody celebrates together. When you're all drunk, everyone's equal. Coming up, we'll hear how they celebrate in the Balkans and in the Basque country of Spain and France. You just have to explode yourself and just let it go. Get an insider's take on what's special about being Sicilian. The more you love someone, the more nicknames you use. <laughs> Friends from Sicily will explain what sets their island culture apart from the rest of Italy. And a Harvard professor recommends classic works from around the world for a little vicarious traveling. I think people have a hunger for just basking in, in, the, in the pleasures of a great work of literature. Come along for the fun of it in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Sicilians have a reputation. In just a bit, two of my Sicilian friends explain how they distinguish themselves from the rest of Italy and take pride in their lively culture. And David Damrosch from the Institute of World Literature at Harvard returns to recommend some of his favorite titles for traveling back in time and around the world. That's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start with a look at the Mardi Gras and carnival celebrations going on in Basque Country. The costumes and street parties will vary from town to town. As one of the oldest cultures in Europe, the Basques include some interesting public festivities in the days leading up to the fasting period of Lent, traditions that sometimes go back further than anyone can remember. For a peek at how they do carnival in Basque country, we're joined by Claire Loyag. She's from Hesperon in the French Basque country, and Augustine Sarisa lives in San Sebastian on the Spanish side of the border. Welcome, Claire and Augustine. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, first of all, you're both from Basque country. Claire, who are the Basques? Just very briefly. Um, the Basque is one of the oldest um, civilizations in Europe, and we are divided on those two parts, one in France and another part in Spain. And, Augustine, there's the language of Basque people. Yes, we speak a Basque language, which we call Euskera. Euskera. Yes. I want to talk about carnival. Carnival basically is the blowout before Lent that leads up to Holy Week and... Easter. It goes way back to even pre-Christian times on trying to get through the winter, and there's a hope for resurrection, for new crops in the fields, for the end of the hunger time, and the darkest depths of winter. I think the meat was going to go bad, and they had to eat it all or something, or carnival. Carne is the word meat, right? Yes, too. And that led up to 40 days of uh, denial, Lent, and then Easter. So we know Mardi Gras in, mm -hmm. in New Orleans. That's basically Fat Tuesday uh, in French, and uh, it's carnival time, right? Uh, yes. Tell me about carnival, because it's a big deal in Basque country. Uh, Augustine, what is carnival in your perspective as a person in Basque country? We have two ways of uh, celebrating carnival. The uh, more more than Christian celebrations that are more popular on the Spanish side and the more traditional pagan celebrations that you can find on the, in the Basque country of France. The difference is the recent history. I mean, these pagan celebrations were banned by the dictator Franco for 35 years. Uh, he banned the use of the language and all kind of uh, celebrations related to pagan ceremonies. And this was banned, so it was primarily lost during that time. So let me get this straight. You've got Basque culture, which is in a lot of ways the same in France and in Spain, 
But carnival is a mix of Christian and pagan traditions. And when you see these crazy creatures jumping up and down in Europe, in many cultures it's pre-Christian, and it's a way to integrate the, the indigenous religion in ancient times with the Christian, the newer religion. And Franco was allied very carefully with the Catholic Church in Spain. He didn't want any pagan influence in the Spanish Basque country, so he said this is a Christian festival, none of that pagan stuff. But in France, they were more free to have let loose with the pagan craziness. Correct, correct. Franco considered himself the highest representation of the Catholic Church and turned the country into a a religious state. Hmm. Now, Claire, I would imagine in France, then, you have some pretty wild costumes when people dress up during Carnival. Yes. Especially where the pagans go crazy in the French (laughs) side of the border. What is the Carnival? Can you just, we're on radio, but paint a picture for us. What does it look like? For me, it's colorful with many natural things. So um, we will have flowers, leaves, we will have um, ribbons, we will have a chilinchak, which is uh, small bells everywhere. So you have to hear the Carnival and you have to see it. It's an explosion, okay, of joy. It's just a moment where you go out from the last year and everything that went wrong and you wish something really good for the next one. So you just have to explode yourself and just let it go. Go out with your animal part of you. Or let your animal free. Exactly. Your, inside of you. We all have this side in us. So we have just, this is the perfect moment just to, and then you start again. So you dress up, there's music, there's staying yes. up all night. What is going on? And Tell me more. Actually, in different places, you've got different carnivals. In the right. French part of the Basque country, we've got three provinces. For example, in La Pourdie, which is really famous, you've got Kashkarotak. So those people, they are going from house to house every weekend before carnival or even after. They go to each house, they get to know the neighborhood. So it's also a kind of ritual. And they'll go to every house, they sing, they play music, they dance, they share uh, several cups of wine, and then <laughs> it's a big party. At the end wow. of the day, you're a bit tired, but it's it's really nice. This is so interesting to me because I've been going to Basque Country for a long time, and I have to be honest, I feel there's more character and enthusiasm in Spain yes. because the French Basques are more French to me. They're more <laughs> controlled by Paris. But here on Carnival, you let that Basque animal, that yeah. pagan animal out. <laughs> Augustine, when you hear Claire talking about that from the Spanish Basque side on Carnival, do you relate? Do you have an animal you're going to let loose also? Uh, unfortunately, no. We have uh, just a couple of uh, little towns in the north of Navarra which are having this celebration in which the, these men are carrying big bells that are yeah. bouncing and making big noise. Big, like uh, cowbells or cow, something like Yes, this. huge cowbells. the Basque culture is a lot of this, uh, you know, animal caretaking in the mountains. Yes, the purpose of it is to awake the nature, awake the youth. Uh, springtime is coming. It's very much related to the end of uh, winter mm-hmm. and welcoming the new year and mm-hmm. also awakening the nature and the spring is coming, the blossom yeah. and, and all. So it's very much related to that. So that's something you can see in two different towns in the north of Pamplona, Navarre, and also a couple of towns in the area outside San Sebastian. When I think of eastern Spain, anyways, I think of processions, solemn processions, like in Sevilla and so on, uh, Semana Santa, Holy Week. Once. So Carnival feels a little more just a, a party. It is. And, it is. and Holy Week is more sacred. Yes, especially on the Spanish side. What yeah. you're going to see is big parades, uh, like, like in the town of Tolosa, that's uh-huh. the most popular one. People go from all the areas to go and see these parades. 
Our guests from Basque Country are Agustin Sarisa from San Sebastian in Spain and Claire Loyag from Hasprin, a little town outside Bayonne in the southwest corner of France. They're sharing what makes the days leading up to Ash Wednesday special in Basque Country and what their traditions include on both sides of the border. So, Claire, I got this image of being in the middle of all this festivity and chaos and music and happy people. Help me just better understand it. First of all, people are dressed up like animals. What kind of animals would they be? So the main animal is a bear, okay? So the bear is opening the spring. So the bear will be around. He will scare the children. And then you've got many people with long hats, horns, flowers, uh, mirrors, and ribbons everywhere. So mirrors on their head. Yeah, and the head and the hat. Long hats. Yeah, long Point, hats. Pointed hats? Yeah, pointed hats are these, with these, ribbons. Are these, these, what color are the pointed hats? With many flowers. All so different all flowers. the colors, yes. Okay. You need to represent nature. And then they so have... So you're a cornucopia of life, really. <laughs> That's right. Okay. And what and else? And they have also a skirt with um, a sheep wool. Um, the horns, and then also uh, natural shoes. Uh, whatever you find in nature, you do it, like trees or whatever you find. So these are a bunch of little fairy elves and so on coming yeah. out of the woods and stirring up all the energy of people. Exactly. What about the music? What kind of music will you Ooh, hear? We've got a lot of music, really punchy, and a lot of songs linked to uh, legendary people or the witches or whatever. And would this be kind of just noisy, ringing bells and hitting drums, or is it uh, actually melodic? We've got to. We've got the drums and the bells just to make a lot of noise, to wake up everybody. And then we've got our song. We sing a lot in the Basque Country, so we have a songs with all the people getting together. It must be a time when the community feels like it's one big family. Oh, yes. And that's part of the beauty. Yeah, it's part of ritual to be together and have fun. <laughs> when I'm thinking about... Carnival, and it sounds like a fun time to come to Basque Country. What should I know about tourism, about travel? Claire, if I'm coming to Basque Country on the French side, where will I go? Is there a, there's a different uh, energy in the small towns and the big cities? Well, I, I love Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Can I just stay there and have a good time, or what do you recommend? So during carnival time, I will recommend Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Mm-hmm. Just in front of the bay, you've got Cibourg, mm-hmm. and they have the Shorgingawa, which is the witch night. And you see those people with the bells, and it's really a popular thing. I will go to Cibourg. So which night is the which night? The Friday night. The Friday night, okay. And Augustine, if you're coming to Best Country in Spain, how would you best enjoy it during Carnival? I would suggest to stay in a big city and then move for the day or maybe two days to this town of Tolosa. 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 T-O-L. O-S-A. Tolosa. Like Toulouse in France, yeah. the Spanish Toulouse would be Tolosa. And actually, we call Carnival Iñautidiac or Asterteac. Asterteac means Tuesday. Tuesday. Yes, the celebrations related to Tuesday, Mardi Gras. Oh, just Tuesday. Yes. Fat or skinny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. we, <laughs> we have fat Thursday and thin Friday. <laughs> okay, good. But you're going to have a great time on that weekend. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about carnival in French Basque Country and Spanish Basque Country. Our guides are Claire Loyag and Agustin Sarisa. And just to cap this beautiful discussion, I'd love both of you to share with me your favorite sort of childhood memory of carnival in your corner of Basque Country. Claire, if you think back, just what's one memory that you just go, wow, that was a crazy time? To be in the middle of carnival. Because for me, many people, they go and to see carnival, but you have to leave it. So you are in the middle, you're a bit lost to get lost. And to see all those people 
looking with colors and animals and to be with them and to just distribute your food and like... And you mean in the middle of it, literally, like there's crazy decorated people all around yeah, you and figuratively everybody. where you're letting yourself free to be exactly. overcome by it. Yes. So it's the good... And then you found again your parents and you're like, oh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Augustine, what's your Well, in my memory? case, um, being born and raised in a city like San Sebastian and having uh, carnival celebrations as you'll find anywhere else, going to small towns in the Basque country of France, uh, that was an experience, seeing okay. all these uh, people dressed up in the traditional outfits and also representing these wild animals. That was something when I was a child to see these people carrying the big cowbells and making that huge noise when you're a kid. That's a kind of a frightening. And, and that is still, even today, we can experience that. So you're going to go to San Sebastian. If you happen to be there during Carnival, you can head on up to Tulosa. Yeah, on the Spanish side. But if it happens that you are there before that, the celebrations start in mid-late January till the week of Carnival in the Basque country of France. So you just need to go and check. Uh, oh, so you just head up to France for the party. Yeah, every weekend they're going to have these um, celebrations yeah. that Claire explained. A very good lesson. Augustine Sarisa, Claire Loyag, thank you very much, and uh, happy carnival. (laughs) Thank you very much. Let that animal out. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The carnival events that lead up to Mardi Gras and Lent have long been a high point of the season in many parts of the world. Up next, we'll hear how it turns the social order upside down in the Balkan countries of Croatia and Slovenia. And friends from Sicily let us in on what makes their culture lively year-round. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Harvard professor David Damrosch recommends his favorite books for adventures around the world. That's in just a bit. But first, our carnival celebrations continue in the crossroads of Central Europe, in the former Yugoslavia. Our guides are Marjan Kriskovic from Ljubljana and Ben Curtis, whose books about the region include A Traveler's History of Croatia. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, Ben, tell us just in a big picture, what is Carnival? How does it relate to Easter? Uh, And this is the same for a lot of different cultures, before we get in specific to to Slovenia. Right. Well, if you've ever read the Bible, you know that there's no Easter bunny in the Bible. So you might wonder, well, why is there this bunny associated with this Christian holiday? Well, Carnival is much the same, minus bunnies. Carnival, in fact, starts as pagan traditions. Literally, Carnival is a bacchanalia, so it goes back to Roman traditions, Bacchus, the god of wine and jollity. He was a party animal. And so the idea is like one last huge party before Lent, before you kind of give up some of your indulgences. And it starts even pre-Christian times as a huge party, which is also sometimes about saying goodbye to winter. Like Mm -hmm. it's the return of spring and the celebrations of the return of the sun And then Carnival just evolves this mixture of masquerades and social criticism, social satire. It's a time where literally, if you've ever been to Mardi Gras or seen Mardi Gras in New Orleans, it's the time where anything goes. And so many of these European Carnival traditions, anything goes. The low can rise to become the high. The powerless can criticize the powerful. And everybody celebrates together. When you're all drunk, everyone's equal. And that's kind of one of the things that is what Carnival is all about. And you've got masks in a lot of cases or costumes where even the high class can get down and dirty with the low class, which is actually kind of exciting for them, too, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So you got the 40 days of fasting and denial during Lent to get prepared for Easter. 
and this would be the big bash before all of this Lenten uh, fasting. Is that right? Exactly. It's like, let's misbehave for a week before we have to really be uh, good. In in a way, did that go back in Europe to as sort of a venting of the disgruntled lower class, the hungry people and so on, a chance for them just to go wild just so they didn't have serious uh, civil disturbances? Right, yeah. It's, again, kind of the whole way that these institutions grew up to try to allow some social criticism and allow people Mm -hmm. to let their steam out, I guess, Mm -hmm. and make sure that they wouldn't actually uh, rise up. Marjan Kriskovich, of course, Carnival is famous in Venice, but just over the border in Slovenia and Croatia, it's big also. Can you talk a little bit about the distinct way that the Slovenes and the Croatians celebrate Carnival? Well, there are certainly two different kinds of Carnival that have developed over the time. One side, there's the original pagan, rough, basic carnival that has to do with pagan tradition, chasing away winter, masks with big horns and sheepskins and bells, and it's uh, almost kind of scary and a lot of um, traditions and rituals that have to some point even lost their meaning in time. And on the other hand, through time, especially the nearby big cultural center of Venice, the centuries developed a more genteel, upscale version of it, And uh, you will find both of these models still today represented throughout Slovenia and Croatia. So generally, the bigger cities will have carnival processions, which are much more in line with what you'll find in Venice. And smaller towns, especially remote areas and hills and in valleys, will have all that rough old uh, pagan pagan stuff. Now, Now, what is the carnival prince? The Carnival Prince, in many places in Europe, just like in Slovenia and Croatia, you will make an effigy of the carnival prince. He's called uh, Pust, Mesopust, Jure Piškanac in my town of Rab. And uh, it's usually a figure that uh, represents this whole period. And of course, at the end of this wild and crazy party, as uh, something that was sinful, it needs to go. So it needs to be burned. Um, they actually burned the prince. That's right. Uh, Talk about political venting. Then. Exactly. <laughs> there are different variations on it. But uh, for instance, in my town, it was staged as a trial where the whole town would uh, show up and there was a prosecution and a defense Mm. and the carnival prince gets blamed for all the stuff, bad stuff that happened in the previous years. Burn it away, start again. That's right. And that would be something that a tourist could actually witness and join in the festivities, Oh, yes, and it's wonderful because it's outside of the tourist season and you really mix only with the locals. You truly get a true experience beyond the big tourism. And Marianne, what are the carnival witches? The carnival witches are actually good witches. They're a symbol of uh, luck, particularly in Sirknica, and are the, um, the representation of the carnival celebrations there. Tour guide Marjan Kreskovic was raised on the Croatian island of Rab. Now he's based in the capital of neighboring Slovenia. Ben Curtis is based in Prague and writes about Central Europe and the Habsburg dynasty, and most recently... He's the co-author of Understanding Global Poverty. They're filling us in on how they celebrate Carnival in the Balkans right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Ben, when you were working on your Traveler's History of Croatia book, did you encounter any way where you could teach some, uh, you know, history of Croatia through the politics and the satire that came out in these festivities? Talk a little bit about the political underlining of these Carnival celebrations in former Yugoslavia. Right. So one example I might cite is the most famous carnival in Croatia is in Rijeka, which is the city at the very northern part of the Kvarnar Gulf on the Adriatic, right on the coast. And Rijeka is the biggest, most famous carnival. And you'll see in some of these Croatian islands some traditions which will remind you of the Venetian carnival. 
And that's how you can, one of the ways that you can know the Venetian influence that was all over the Croatian coast for hundreds and hundreds of years. Ben, just to wrap things up, what is your best tip for a traveler enjoying carnival in Croatia or Slovenia? Mm Mm-hmm. Go and just mix right in. You know, jump into it. Uh, Don't wait to be invited. Yeah. Um, grab a glass of something. You can drink whatever. And uh, maybe even if you want to, get a mask. And It's you <laughs> it's easier with a mask. It's easier with a mask. And you don't have to spend a lot of money. You just party with everybody. So, you know, Venice is quite complicated and, and uh, mm-hmm. overwhelmed. But uh, you can go a few miles away and have a whole different carnival ambience and at ease. Marjan Kriskovic, tell us your favorite carnival memory growing up in former Yugoslavia. Well, that would be, of course, from my hometown uh, in Rab. I was mentioning the burning of the Carnival Prince. Uh, well, the things that he gets blamed for uh, are usually embarrassing things that would have happened in the course of the years. Essentially, it's uh, town's gossip that gets recycled from the entire year, and that's what a little town like that thrives in its off-time winter mode. So just in case if anybody missed something, they turn up for the trial to the Carnival Prince, and um, everything gets recycled in the sense of we blame you for this and this embarrassing thing happening to that and that person. And just in case if you miss something, everything gets printed as well. Ultimately, his last will and testimony is read, and so the same um, kind of charade continues with uh, this and this item being bestowed to this and that person, so that embarrassing thing doesn't happen to them again. In uh, little communities like that, there's always a pair of eyes um, looking and observing something, even when you think there's nobody there. So it can be pretty fun. So you were personally involved in some of these rituals of forgiveness? Of course. But uh, needless to say, leading up to this are on several weekends for several weeks. There are big parties and masked balls throughout town. Sometimes the towns will even finance costumes for the local people. And especially for the children, we don't have trick-or-treat for Halloween but this, the same kind of ritual happens at carnival time. Okay. And kids will go from door to door and uh, basically ask, get candies. Great memories. And then they um, have all these parties with masks and uh, dancing. So it's just a wonderful time for children and a lot of fun memories. I am so thankful that these wonderful medieval festivals, so rooted in all these different cultures around Europe, survive. And as travelers, we can enjoy them today. And they, they survive even in the modern time when the when maybe the the reason that started them in the very beginning is no longer there. They still are embraced, and it's a fun way to celebrate not only who you are, but if you're a traveler, where you're visiting. Ben Curtis and Marianne Kriskovic, happy carnival. Happy, happy carnival. carnival. How do you say, Marianne, happy carnival in uh, Croatian? Sretan mesopust. Happy carnival. <laughs> <laughs> There's more than the Strait of Messina that sets the island of Sicily apart from the rest of Italy. For an insider look at Sicilian culture at the historic crossroads of the Mediterranean, we're joined now by tour guides Alfio Di Mauro and Maria Cardi. They're both born and raised in Sicily. Mari and Alfio, thanks for joining us. Buongiorno. Ciao, Rick. As a modern Sicilian, what do you enjoy most about your culture, and what do you think should be changing as uh, Sicily evolves into the modern future? Being a Sicilian, we are very people-oriented kind of. We welcome anyone, everybody. This is what we have been doing historically <laughs> with so all of these invasions. You had to whether you like it or not. Exactly. Really. And it, it's really now a blood. We are so easy with travelers, tourists that come to visit, or friends or whatever, that, you know, we almost encourage everybody to enter in our island. And what is fascinating, sometimes we have, you know, little conversation, discussion, sometimes a little arguments, but 
if you see three people and two of them are having arguments, those two are Sicilians, and the third one is the tourists looking at them, what they are doing. <laughs> well, a lot of times you can look at two Sicilians talking, and it seems like they're arguing, but they're just excited. And they're, exactly. They're Usually, shaking their fist and yes, raising their voice. Yes. Well, in general, the tone of the voice is a little bit higher, and we always use our hands in hand gestures, and sometimes we move the whole body. Mari, when you, when you travel a lot, and you do travel when you leave Sicily, when you come home to Sicily, what are you most thankful to come home to? Mm, apart from the weather, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is very important. I like the fact that we are really generous. For example, just to, to let you understand how welcoming we are, there are a lot of stray dogs and cats in, uh, in Sicily, especially in Palermo where I live. But we are so generous that we treat them as citizens. So we give them names, we feed them, and they are the guardians of the the quarters, the quarters of Palermo. And of the different I, I found quarters the, of Palermo? The different quarters of Palermo, yes. And I found it uh, amazing, really. So there's just this friendliness that even yeah. spills out of <laughs> the human realm and even into the dogs and the cats. Yes. Now, when people are coming to Sicily... We know Italy, and then we go to Sicily, and it is, uh, it's the same country, but it's a different culture. When an Italian looks at Sicily, how would they describe the difference from the rest of Italy? Now things are changing, mm-hmm. because before, as we said, uh, Sicilians uh, went abroad to find a job. Now everybody in Italy goes abroad. So we are more or less in the same situation. Oh, so let me get this straight. In earlier times... The economy was bad in Sicily mm-hmm. and worse than in Italy, so Sicilians were going to Italy for a job. Yes. But now it's just as difficult in Italy and everybody's yes. going abroad. Yes. So there's sort of a equalizing yes. with the economy. And this is a big difference. Now, in uh, Sicily, there's a very special connection between uh, the men and their mothers. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. In each Sicilian family, we have a saint in the family. It is our mom. A saint. The it's saint our, of the family is the mom. It's a mom. Uh, and, and you have no choice. Mom is there. It's in a shrine. You have to love it as a saint. But what is interesting, the mother-in-law is like the devil. It's on a, on a different category. There's this guy. It's, it's like a joke. We, we make fun about this all the time. But the, the worst insult you can say mother-in-law, like suocera, <laughs> because sometimes there's this kind of stereotypes right. that usually the mother-in-law are not as nice as their okay. mothers. But the Sicilian boys really have a special connection with their mothers, and she's like a saint in the house. Uh, yes. I would say that, yeah, the more south you go, the more that connection it becomes. The, the stronger, stronger the umbilical cord is. It's yeah. harder to break. Yes. <laughs> Now you're the you're the little little child yeah. in the family. When you think back to your childhood, describe the breakfast, the traditional Sicilian breakfast. Uh, something that, that I that I remember is a zabaione, and it's made with a raw egg uh-huh. and coffee and a lot of sugar, and it's really really good. Mixed together, yes. An egg Mixed and coffee together. and sugar. Yes, it's uh, it's wonderful. And was it then uh, cooked until it was solid, or was it a drink? No, not a drink. Drink yes. egg in your coffee. Yes. Do you still drink this? No, but I want to. <laughs> <laughs> and Alfie, if you think back to your uh, childhood, what is a good breakfast memory? In general, we don't have a strong breakfast culture, actually. Mm-hmm. So in, basically, don't worry about breakfast, you'll have a big lunch? 
Yeah, usually the, the main meal of the day is lunch. And uh, like Spain, in the south of Italy, that means in Sicily we do siesta. That means we have a very late dinner, especially in the summer. Mm-hmm. So often when we woke up in the morning, we're still digesting the food of the dinner the night oh, before. Oh, that's right. <laughs> the late dinner. And, uh, we w- woke up with really no appetite. The only thing we do is we sip a coffee. Have a cup of coffee. And we hurry up, pretending we have a job to do somewhere. But <laughs> <laughs> You know, one of my favorite memories in Sicily was in the beautiful town of Cefalu. I love Cefalu. It's yes. a, like a fishing town. Love it. And I hung out with these guys, and one old man was so charming, and after a while I asked him his name, and uh, he explained to me that nobody knows my name here. My, they call me Il Presidente. Il Presidente. And uh, I guess there's nicknames that people just, these old guys, these fishermen, they always had a nickname for each other. Is that something that is uh, typical, or, or is there uh, these clubs? He was in a fisherman's club. Yeah, it is typical, especially in the small towns, that everybody has what the Sicilian call upeco, which is the nickname. And sometimes is like can be an exaggeration of a, a characteristic. A characteristic. Mm-hmm. And the word pecco means that once it is given to you, it will die with you. There's that nothing is, you can do to remove that. This is what I felt with this man because he was quite old and everybody just knew that is. I mean, it was like 50 years ago, somebody yeah. said jokingly, il presidente, and he'll take that to the grave. You know about this particular man? I met this man you're talking about. In you the know square, him? In, yes, in the square of Cefalo. And uh, the reason why he's called il, il presidente because for a time he was the president of the fisherman club of Cefalo. Okay. It, but more than the club was the kind of a little union of yes, fishermen. Yes, a union in of town. fishermen. Yes. Next time you see him, tell him he's got a friend in Seattle. Mari, when you think about the nicknames and the and the and the culture, what's an insight? We love into we love uh, nicknames, mm-hmm. and I think that the more you love someone. The, the more nicknames you use is <laughs> um, our way to show love, for me at least. Give me a good example. Um, for example, I never call my friends with their real names. When I call them with their real names, it means that uh, we are not so close. Right. That's interesting because nobody calls me Richard. If somebody calls me Richard... I think I'm in trouble with the tax yeah. man or something like that. You <laughs> yeah, know? it's possible. <laughs> but, but it's Rick. So that's kind of like, that's a moderate nickname, but, but you would take it one step further. You would yeah. go from Rick to... But, uh, but for example, Saint Rosalie, that is the patron saint of Palermo, we uh-huh. call her la, la Santuzza. You call your patron saint yeah, by a nickname? La, yes, La Santuzza. I love it. <laughs> this is the charm of getting beyond the great sights. Of course, when you go to Sicily... You've got to see the great sights, but you've also got to connect with the people, get out on the beach, meet Il Presidente, let them take you in and get you a cup of coffee, and then you're connecting with the really with the soul of mm-hmm. Sicily. Yeah. Alfio and Mari, thank you so much for helping us better understand this beautiful corner of Europe, Sicily. Grazie. I think the better suggestion we can give to the American tourist is as you said, Rick, go out in the street and talk to people. Sicilians are almost anxious to answer to you. They will go out of their way to give you information, direction. Even if you do not understand what they're saying, even if they don't necessarily understand their English, they will do whatever they can to help you. And 
Even if you know one single word in Italian, just use it because they will feel honored that you try to make an effort to communicate with them. That is a suggestion. This is critical. You've got to venture out of your comfort zone, go to Sicily, go into the market, learn about the olives, listen to the song of the merchants, use six or seven words in Italian, and you're going to find you've got all sorts of friends, and you're going to have memories for the rest of your life. Mari, Alfio, mille grazie. Prego. Ciao. 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 David Damrosch brings us a literary guide to the world next on Travel with Rick Steves. Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. Protože cestujeme s Rickem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodá. Tak dáte si pivo. This was Czech and it means hi. My name is Honza, I'm from Prague. And since we are traveling with Rick, we are traveling mainly through the pubs. Will you have a beer with me? Ahoj, já jsem Honza z Prahy. Protože cestujeme s Rickem, tak cestujeme v prvé řadě po hospodách. Tak dáte si pivo. I'm a big believer in the more understanding you pack along in your travels, the more you'll get out of your trip. And especially when venturing beyond our country in Europe, I find enjoying a book chosen to enhance my understanding can really help. Before heading out on a trip, that's what David Damrosch loves to do. He explores what great authors have written about the place he's visiting. As chair of the Department of Comparative Literature at Harvard University, David put together a list of 80 works that he recommends. Contemporary and classic writers who are the best at making foreign worlds come alive for us. He's written a kind of guide to this. It's called Around the World in 80 Books. And David joins us now for some advice on a few great books that can help make distant lands, distant cultures, come alive, even if just traveling vicariously from your own living room. David, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. So you have an appetite for travel, as I do, and I, I love the way you referenced the first movie you ever saw, and you were just a little toddler, and you saw um, Jules Verne's book in a movie form, Around the World in 80 Days. What's your memory of that, and what kind of an impact did that have on you? Well, it's, I think it was one of the first you know, widescreen panorama projections, uh, and it's so vast, uh, the landscape that you get uh, through the film. And I was this little kid growing up in Maine. I'd never been outside of the state of Maine as far as I, certainly not at that age. And suddenly there's this whole world that you can see. And so that, that was really a jolt for me in a very positive way. Now, your book is around the world in 80 books, and it's broken into chapters, uh, 15 or 16 chapters, each hitting a destination. And of course, you've got European destinations and Western destinations. But for me, the real challenge is breaking out of our culture. I'm, I guess I'm just pretty ethnocentric when I come to what I can relate to. And any time I can get an inkling of a rich culture through its literature that is totally outside of the West, Africa, Asia, uh, Islam, to me it is so rewarding. And, and what is sort of emblematic of that is when I was in Iran, I went to Shiraz, and there they have the tombs of the great poets. And these are like religious figures, I think, for the, the people of Iran. And to see people gathering on the birthdays of these poets and going on dates and reading poetry on the tomb of Hafez or, you know, the, the local equivalents of Rumi. It's just an inspiration, but it's kind of out of reach for me. Uh, I know that you have a, a section on Hafez and the poets of Shiraz. How do we make that within reach? Well, I think uh, translations are very important for this. Uh, a really great translation with a good introduction 
can do a lot. Uh, so there's a wonderful translator, Dick Davis, uh, and the collection is called Faces of Love, Hafiz and the Poets of Shiraz. He, he carefully picks three poets and selects from those the poems he thinks will speak best to us. He translates them brilliantly, and he has a nice introduction, and it's a delightful, delightful book. It's not like studying. It's like, ah, love poetry uh, from these people. And one of them is an obscene poet, and one of them is a woman poet. Very interesting. So you get a whole different sense than what you might think from the news uh, items about Iran today. In my own hmm. case, going to Shiraz a few years ago, uh, my host uh, took my wife and me there uh, to the tomb of Hafez, along with his daughter-in-law, who is a, a physician, and she starts reciting poems from memory. And it was mm-hmm. just like, ah, this is really coming to life. You know, you said translated brilliantly. How do you know it was translated brilliantly? Uh, that's a very interesting question. One thing you can do uh, with a work that's been translated often is you can compare translations and you can sort of see, now, which is a translation for me? There's not even necessarily only one best one, but which speaks to me? Uh, which do I feel hmm. at home in? And, and I felt that very much with these translations of Hafez. Hmm. It's like different versions of the Bible. Now there's all sorts of different translations of the Bible and some are in, you know, 21st century street language and others are in Old English and so on. And I guess you just got to find the language that the translation that works for you. Yeah, and I'm a great believer in the pleasure principle. If I pick up a book and uh, start it, and it's just not speaking to me, then I'll pick up a different book. There's lots of other books in the world. So the the choice of the book is important, and you're going to invest many hours into it. And the potential for really having it have an impact on you is huge. And the other choice is what translation you're going to choose. And that would deserve a little bit of um, shopping around before you commit. It can. If it's a 20th century work, you may have only one choice, and that's fine. Or if you just, you'll hear about it. I mean, I'm also a great believer in word of mouth. I mean, a lot of my favorite books, someone put it in my hand and said, you've got to read this. And that that's a good way. I also want to underscore that for me, literature is a really privileged mode of access to very distant times and places. And I work a lot mm-hmm. in ancient literature. And one of the things that I like to find is, is work that really makes you feel at home. And, and the most distant thing that can speak to us, just give a, an ancient Egyptian example Here's a, a stanza from an Egyptian poem from maybe 3,000 years ago. Uh, a man is saying to himself, Why need you hold converse with your heart? To embrace her is all my desire. Now he's speaking to the girl. As Amun lives, I come to you, my loincloth on my shoulder. Uh, I think we can sort of relate to that. Another poem, the woman sings, I found my lover at the ford, his feet set on the water. He builds a table there for feasts and sets it out with beer. He brings a blush to my skin for he is tall and lean. Hmm. You know, I'm just curious, because you're so steeped in, in uh, higher education and, and uh, this kind of high thinking, what do you feel like the priorities in our society are doing these days in education? Because I feel like there's a lot of pressure to have us all become well-trained for a, a career, you know, vocational training, basically, at the expense of liberal arts, and um, literature and history and so on. Um, do you feel like there's any tug-of-war going on in our society or, or are people just bailing on one value and investing in the other? Well, I think there, there's always been a tendency this way. Uh, Wordsworth, he talks in the preface to the second edition of Lyrical Ballads that, oh, there's all this junk literature people are reading now. The works of Shakespeare being overwhelmed. No one's reading Shakespeare anymore. They're just reading these sickly and stupid German tragedies that are coming over. The equivalent of, you know, bad things on Netflix, I guess. There's always that that worry. And I think that, I mean, my responsibility as a teacher is to say, look, these works are really good. Read these. Spend time with them. 
and, and our students really respond to it. I think people have a hunger for just slowing up, thinking a little bit, and just basking in, in, the, in the pleasures of a great work of literature. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with literary historian David Damrosch, and he founded Harvard University's Institute for World Literature. And he's with us today to recommend some of the greatest writing about many places that he profiles in his book, Around the World in 80 Books. It's his compilation of 80 exceptional books, classics and contemporary, from authors who shape our idea of the world through literature. So, David, let's just talk very briefly about these different corners of the planet and how literature might open us up to things. Let's talk about Sub-Saharan Africa. What a diverse and fascinating story that has been, I think, almost intentionally underappreciated. We have, we have diminished it, and uh, it's compounded by the challenge that there's not a lot published in Sub-Saharan Africa. What is a way that we can remedy that in our reading? Yes, yeah, so I think to find what there is, which is already a lot and more than any one person can probably read, and to sort of see the the dialogue that these writers have with each other. So Africans are quite tired of being told about their society from outside, uh, of which a classic that I discuss is uh, Joseph Conrad's brilliant novella, Heart of Darkness, which is a wonderful exploration of what it's like for a European to be in a totally foreign era. But then Chinu Achebe, great writer, mid-century, uh, writes an essay on racism and heart of darkness. And he says, you know, the Africans have no voice. Uh, he's well-meaning, he's anti-imperialistic, but look, he's repeating the worst aspect of, of the empire, that yeah. there's no human being at the other at the other side. So here he writes that. And then contemporary writer Chimamanda Adichie, wonderful Nigerian-American writer, rewrites Things Fall Apart in her story, uh, The Thing Around Your Neck. And she gives it now a much more strong feminist aspect and much more contemporary than Achebe. But if you read Achebe and Adichie, you get a already a stereoscopic view I also think that we who are studying these things have to be kind of activists. Uh, one of the works I include is an amazing work uh, by a Congolese novel called Jean-Baptiste Vico, or the Viol du Discours Africain. Jean-Baptiste Vico, or the Rape of African Discourse. And he's very much concerned with this European's perspective taking over. But it was never translated because he's making fun of the Africanists. He's making fun of the Europeans. This was published in 75. But 15 years ago, I said, this book really needs to be translated. So finally I decided, well, no one's going to do it. I better put my time where my mouth is. So I have now just translated huh. it. It's coming out in the, in the spring in a bilingual edition. And you've got five books that are worth knowing about in your chapter that covers sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Latin America. Uh, I think we're pretty ethnocentric in our own hemisphere, and there's lots going on south of our border. What would you recommend there? I'm a big fan of the greatest 19th century novelist in Brazil, uh, whose name is uh, Machado de Assis. Joaquim Maria Machado de Assis. And he was a fascinating character. He's, he's, a, he's mixed race, uh, part African, a part European descent, grows up in utter poverty, uh, and is a genius. He starts publishing when he's 15. He becomes the most important novelist of the century in Brazil. He founds the Brazilian Academy of Letters. And this wonderful satirical novel, uh, The Posthumous Memoirs of Bras Cubas, the, the hero has died and is writing his memoirs after his death. And it's as satirical, as hilarious, and as a deep dissection of the tensions of Brazil moving into independence in the 19th century. It's absolutely wonderful and been retranslated recently very well. That sounds fascinating. Before, yeah, if you are fortunate enough to travel to any of these rich corners of the planet, it's, a, it's almost a, a shame not to have a little context given to you by some great and thoughtfully chosen literature. Of course, China is a is the emerging giant on the planet. 
what is your advice for better understanding China through literature? There's uh, the most important woman writer of the 20th century in China named Eileen Chang. Wonderful collection of short stories called Love in a Fallen City, beautifully translated by Karen Kingsbury. The title story is an amazing thing set uh, in World War, Japanese-occupied period in World War II. Uh, contemporary writer Mo Yan, Nobel Prize winner, fantastic novel, Life and Death Are Wearing Me Out. Uh, he's re- reincarnated several times as different animals. Uh, and each time is another decade in modern Chinese history from 1950 to, to 2000, where he's reborn finally as millennium baby in the new century can begin. It's, it's satirical and it's moving. And it's absolutely wonderful. David Damrosh is joining us from his home studio in Brooklyn right now on Travel with Rick Steves. David teaches comparative world literature at Harvard, where he's also the director of the Institute for World Literature. During the pandemic lockdown, David turned his armchair travels into his own literary guide. It's called Around the World in 80 Books. David's book is designed to help us explore some 80 contemporary and classic writers and to make the worlds they write about come alive in our imaginations. David, I was going to go through a couple more regions about the around the planet, but what I'd like to do is uh, instead go back in time because I know you have a, a real affinity for and appreciation for ancient sources. And as a tour guide and a travel writer, I have a real passion for helping people get themselves in the mindset of somebody who lived and worked and did great things centuries ago that we tend to underestimate. What is an example of some ancient literature that, that you would find both accessible and really helpful in giving us an appreciation of civilizations from a time that we might underestimate them? Well, the greatest novel ever written by a woman any time in the history of literature is The Tale of Genja by Murasaki Shikibu. Not saying anything against uh, Virginia Woolf or George Eliot, whom I adore, hmm. but uh, Murasaki is amazing, amazing, amazing. So say that again. Just That's a new name for a lot of us. So the author's name is Murasaki, Murasaki uh-huh. Shikibu. The Tale of Genji, G-E-N-J-I, written a thousand years ago in uh, Kyoto. And you can still go to temples there that are from that era. And she's telling the story of uh, a prince, a shining prince, Genji, and all the women in his life. Uh, and it's filled with poetry. And it really gives you a feel of aspects of Japanese culture that you absolutely feel today. Hmm. One of the other writers, I talk about Higuchi Uchiyo, who was the most important woman writer of the late 19th century in Japan, identified very closely with Murasaki. And, and indeed, when she sells her first story, she's a poor kid uh, in, in Tokyo on the edge of the red light district. She sells a story uh, for like the equivalent of a couple of bucks to a popular magazine. And her sister says, oh, you'll be a famous writer. One day your picture will be on a banknote. She says, oh, come on, get out of it. <laughs> well, her picture is now on the 5,000 yen banknote. She's the third woman ever, the other whom was an empress and Morisake Shikibu. Whoa, what an accomplishment. You know, and you mentioned Kyoto a thousand years ago. When I was in Kyoto, I had this sense that this is a marvelous, sophisticated, flowery, fragrant, fun-loving, elegant society, but I didn't know how to get my brain around it. I just had this strong feeling that I was walking through a town that a thousand years ago was every bit as exciting as it is today. Give me a concrete example of how this book you mentioned that's written a thousand years ago can take you back in time in Japan. Yes, it's very much about uh, how particularly women are making a place for themselves in a very patriarchal society and in a world where uh, walls are made out of paper, everyone hears and gossips about what everything else is happening. So it's a little bit like the blogosphere or the internet now. There's no real privacy. It's very 
refined, as you say, very aesthetic. And just on the surface, there's this oppression and violence in all sorts of directions and people maneuvering, jockeying for position everywhere. So it's not necessarily that different from what's happening in the Japanese parliament today at a different level. At the same time, you, you really feel that they have this deep sense of the, the transience of life. Uh, there's a wonderful moment, uh, Genji's love of his life is also named Murasaki. The, the author takes her pen name from the name of her heroine as she dies. And Genji thinks, oh, I wanted to live with her a thousand years, but uh, that cannot happen in life. That's the great sad truth. Well, Murasaki died a thousand years ago, but the tale of Genji lives on a thousand years later. Oh, you know, I love the way you bring out these sort of timeless truths and insights that we can gain through literature and how there's more often than not applications to our life and our challenges and our confusion today to draw upon to try to wrestle with challenges we have today emotionally and philosophically and intellectually. Yeah, I think that the great thing about literature, it helps us see ourselves from outside, which is so hard to do otherwise. And that's a great thing about travel. I mean, totally. I believe that... Uh, you actually learn more about your own homeland by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. And I suppose with literature, we can do something along the same and lines. often the two at once. So one of my authors is James Baldwin, who's often thought of as one of the great African-American writers, but he writes all of his major work in France. He's looking back hmm. at America from that distance, and he couldn't have done it otherwise. David Damrush, thank you for writing this and, and your, your passion to inspire us to take advantage of literature to get more out of our travels and to actually enjoy some travels sometimes without even leaving home. The book is Around the World in 80 Books. Thanks again, David. Thank you, Rick. Those faraway places I've been reading about in a book that I took from a have you ever written about the world you see in a short haiku poem? Here's some examples of what our listeners are writing. They sent in their travel haiku from a link at ricksteves.com radio. Babette Salas from Springfield, Illinois, updates a haiku she sent us several years ago to mention the Global Soap Project. It's a collaboration between hotels and an agency that promotes public health in the developing world by bringing soap to the people who need it. Her first poem read... Tiny hotel soap, too small to wash my body, still I'll take you home. Now, she says, tiny hotel soap, first I bathe, then you're off to Global Soap Project. Jeffrey Staley of Bothell, Washington, paints this portrait of the view from his window seat on a flight from Boston to Seattle. Cloud pearls curl proudly above Lake Superior. Water winks below. While Pamela Wilding from San Rafael, California, turned this common flight experience into a poem. Our flying tin lands, sardine passengers await a can opener. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. I'm the executive producer, Tim Tatton, assisted by associate producers, Casmara Hall and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading this week's Travel Haiku. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My public television miniseries, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, takes you on an exciting sweep through the entire awe-inspiring story of European art history in six hours. 
Watch the series from the Parthenon to Picasso on your local station or stream it on PBS Passport or at ricksteves.com.